pray for the word read. Father, we thank you for this word which we are about to hear read and preached. We're thankful that a word that was spoken by our Savior 2,000 years ago has relevance for us in the present. We would ask that as we hear the word read and preached, you would superintendent uh, flood our hearts and our minds. We would know that it is not a dead word, but it is living and active. And it is a word spoken for us in the present. We find within it life, abundant life. May you receive the praise and the glory. In Christ's holy name, amen. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. This is the holy and errant word of God. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was in seminary 20 plus years ago. Uh, I started a reformed study group in the seminary I was in. It wasn't a reformed seminary. And so what we would do is we would read different books together and then discuss them, or one of us would do a presentation and the rest would listen and different aspects of Reformed theology. And remember one Saturday morning we gathered together and I had invited a Reformed Episcopal Church bishop to join us. This bishop had been a student at this same seminary decades before. And I remember on this morning he told us one of the great regrets of his life. He said it had happened 
early in his marriage, the first five years of his marriage, and he looks back with regret because he and his wife had purposefully tried not to have children. It wasn't because they didn't want to have children. It wasn't because they didn't want to be parents. They, they did. And it wasn't so much that they purposefully tried not to have children those first five years as it was the reason why they purposefully tried not to have children those first five years. And the reason was because of their end times view, their eschatology, the doctrine of last things. He believed at the time what the seminary I attended taught, that there would be a secret rapture and there would be a great tribulation to follow. And he and his wife were very concerned that this secret rapture would happen where all the believers on earth will be caught up into the sky and go into heaven and that they might have children that weren't yet believers and they would be stuck here on earth without parents. And that thought to him and to his wife was too much to bear, that their children might be left without parents. And so they chose purposefully not to have children. Now that's an extreme view. But it shows how your eschatology, your doctrine of last things, what you believe will occur in the future can have a a bearing upon the present. And a messed up view of the end times can cause quite a mess in the present. Matthew chapter 24 has probably been the greatest text to create a out-of-whack view for people about their end times or their doctrine of eschatology. And so what we're going to do these next three weeks as we walk our way through Matthew is we're going to camp out here in Matthew 24. This week we'll take kind of a high-level view. I want to look at it from 10,000 feet. And then next week we'll look at the destruction of the temple, and the following week we'll look at the return of Christ as we spend three weeks here. But this week what I want to do is look at these first 14 verses at kind of a high level, and I want to do it in three ways. First, we see that these disciples come to Jesus and they ask two questions. This is the what of the text, so we'll look at the what of the text. And then I want us to look at the when. Jesus gives the answer as to when. When will these things occur? And then I want to look at the why. Why does Jesus tell us these things? So the what, the when, and the why. You'll remember that Jesus and his disciples have been in the temple. It's at the temple that Jesus has been, as we saw last week, was pronouncing these woes upon the Pharisees, these false teachers uh, within the Jewish nation. And they are there in the temple, and they are walking out of the temple. This temple is what we would call the second temple. Uh, The first temple was built by Solomon. You'll remember Solomon took over from his father David because David had unclean hands. And so Solomon was ordained by God and his providence to build that first temple. And that first temple will be a grand, ornate structure, but it will be destroyed by the Neo-Babylonian Empire in 586 B.C., and it will be laid to waste. 
The Jews will then return to the land, and as they return to the land, one of their first things that they want to do is to rebuild the temple in the land because this was God's meeting place with his people. And so they will begin to rebuild what we call the second temple. And around 536 B.C., that second temple will be finished. King Herod, who most of us know from the early life of Jesus, will reign over the nation of Israel during those early years of the gospel. And King Herod will look at the second temple that has been built, and he'll decide that he is going to do a refurbishment project. And so he's going to refurbish the second temple, and he's going to expand the second temple. And that he does. And so we call the second temple of Jesus' day Herod's temple. It was an absolutely amazing structure in the ancient world. Uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of this time, he was a historian, but he was also... um, a little bit of an exaggerator as an historian. Uh, But even if we take what he says about the temple as, okay, it may not be exactly this, but it's somewhere in that ballpark, it's pretty amazing as he gives some of the details about the temple. He says that the stones that were used in this temple were 35 feet by 11 feet by 17 feet. The stones used to construct it, 35 by 17 by 11. He says that the temple gate doors were 49 feet high and 24 and a half feet wide. I don't know. You know, 49 feet, is that twice the height of, of this room? I don't know, something like that. He said that there were columns, Corinthian columns, that were made of white marble, and they had 162 of these columns that glimmered in the sun, and those 162 white marble columns held above it a a roof that was made of carved wood that had all kinds of intricate details. It was a massive structure. It was beautiful, and it was ornate, and it was gorgeous. It was a source of pride for the Jews, even as it was a place of worship. And so Matthew tells us that as the disciples and as Jesus are leaving this monumental ancient world structure, that the disciples point to it and point out how wonderful it is to Jesus. Look at how amazing these buildings are, Jesus. Jesus responds in our text in verse 2. You see all these, meaning all of these buildings. Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This temple is going to be destroyed. So destroyed that every one of these massive stones, there wouldn't even be one that's laying on top of another. They would all be moved. That destroyed. Now, the disciples, they are rightfully bothered by this. 
The temple was a national point of pride. It was a declaration of the world that we are God's people and we are distinct from everyone else. It was not only, though, a national place of pride. It was also, as we mentioned, the place of Jewish ceremonial worship. Their lives, literally, as a nation, as Jewish people, as personal people, centered upon the temple. This is where life was at. You couldn't look at Jerusalem without seeing the temple. It sat on the horizon. It was the edifice. It was the thing that seemed to hover above everything else and dominate the entire landscape. And it was a point of pride. Maybe something like us taking the White House and the Capitol and the Washington Monument and the Brooklyn Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge and Spartan Stadium and wrapping them all up together. And so they come to Jesus with their questions. In many ways, the temple had ceased to be a blessing to the Jewish people at this point. It had really become a a stumbling block. They believed that God's blessings would always be upon them because they had the temple and it didn't matter how faithful they were or how faith-filled they were. And so, this is shocking. This leads to what we call the Olivet Discourse here in Matthew 24. They're on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come to Jesus with a question, with questions about what he has just said. We see that in verse 3 here. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They haven't wrongly, they think of Jesus and everything that they've heard from him, and they've heard him talk about the end of the age, they've heard him talk about his return, and so they've tied these two things together. The temple and Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. The end of the age and Jesus returning. And they've made these two one thing. They also introduce that element of the return of Christ. They use a word that we've come to use to refer to the return of Christ, parousia. Upon your return, your coming, they say, the parousia, that is, it's just a word that means presence, Christ's presence, his presence with them, his appearing. When will your parousia be, Jesus? Tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign of your parousia, your coming, and the end of the age? They're convinced these two things will occur together. In English, it looks like they're asking three questions, but it's really just two. When is the temple in Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And when is the end of the age coming with your return, Jesus? We see these as happening at one time. Jesus now gives them the win. And he answers, but it's a, it's a little confusing to determine when is he talking about in the text and how do you sort this out. And maybe the, the easiest way to, to talk of the win is just kind of zoom out and talk about the three ways that this has been understood in the history of the church, Matthew 24. 
The first is what we might call the preterist view, the preterist view. A preterist understands that Matthew 24 is all about past events, things that have been fulfilled. So when they look at Matthew 24, they see all of these things that Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 24 occurring in A.D. 70. So after Jesus has died, after he's been buried, after he's been resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father, then about 30 years later, the Roman army comes into Jerusalem and they decimate the city and they destroy the temple and they say, Matthew 24 is all about that. It's already happened. It's past. Preterist. The problem with that is if you flip over to to verse 29 through 31... You read this, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun, we're told, will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. There will be stars that fall from the heaven. There will be powers of the heavens that will be shaken. And then it says, then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, that is the Christ. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he's coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with glory. And he goes on to say that he collects all of the elect. He sends out his angels to collect all of the elect from the four winds. This from every corner of earth. Now, going out and collecting all of the elect from all of the corners of the earth, that is much more than what is happening in A.D. 70 in the destruction of the temple. It isn't clearly the straightforward meaning of the text. These are signs of the second advent of Christ. That's the preterist view. The second view is what I would term the dispensational view. And if the preterist view sees everything in Matthew 24 as having happened at A.D. 70 in the past, then the dispensational view, depending on the dispensationalists, but almost all of them see it as happening in the future. That most things in Matthew 24, if not all things, are future. And they are yet to come. Now this is a rather new view Uh, It's a view that was developed in the 1840s by a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby. Uh, It has been popularized, was popularized because of the Schofield Reference Bible and because of Bible conferences that were held in Canada and up here in the north in the United States, and then especially through the seminary that I went to, Dallas Theological Seminary, which has had a huge impact upon evangelicalism and disseminating dispensationalism. It has become popularized today with the Left Behind series and the Tim LaHaye books um, or the Hal Lindsey books before that. You know dispensationalism. It might be a new term to you, but dispensation just means time period. But you know it. Most of you have some understanding of it. Every time that you hear about the nation state of Israel and how important it is and how it needs to get into the land of Israel and occupy it, or every time you hear about the great tribulation or you hear about the secret rapture or you hear about the millennium, the literal thousand years that will follow the great tribulation or the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, you're hearing dispensationalism. And you know it. Most of you have heard that. The 
problem with this view is that it makes little sense in the context. Because if Jesus is just purely talking about future events and not also talking about A.D. 70, then he's not answering the disciples' question. They want to know, when is Jerusalem being destroyed? When is the temple being destroyed after what you've just said? And we want to know, when is the end of time and when is your return? They see them as the same thing. But if Jesus is not answering about A.D. 70, then there's very little relevance for what he is saying to the people that he's speaking to. That view holds very little water. The third view is what I would understand from this passage, what I would term the historic view. And Jesus is seeking to answer these two questions. When will the fall of the temple happen? When will Jerusalem happen? One question. When will you return, Jesus, in your parousia? And when will the end of time come? And as they are two questions, and they are seeing them as one question... So Jesus is going to answer both of these questions, and he is going to interchange between the two as he goes through Matthew chapter 24 here. It's a kind of combo answer to what is really two different things that they are asking about. And the reason that he can do this and that he does do this is because the truth is the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 is but a shadow of the judgment that will come at the end of time. And so even as he speaks of the fall of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, all of these things that he is seeking to warn them about and encourage them to can also be applied to his return in judgment and the end times. And in many cases, there is even what we see often with prophecy, a double fulfillment in this text where it's happening in both. So the exhortations Jesus gives for his generation's coming trials and the need to persevere is meant to encourage every generation that follows. So why does Jesus tell us all of this? And I want to really look at the text here. Why does why does he tell us all of this? You have these what questions. You have the when answer. But why does he tell us all of this? Why does he tell them about the destruction of the temple in AD 70? And why does he tell us about the end of the world coming and his return? Well, first, Jesus tells us about the trials to come so we won't be led astray by false teachers. That's how he begins, verse 3 or verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. He's concerned that as they hear of these different trials and these different tribulations, and as persecution comes, that false leaders will be able to snatch them. And so he's warning them. He's telling them to expect these things to come so that false prophets won't grab them. He says nations will war against other nations. Famines and earthquakes, he says, will occur. These things must take place before the end. But he doesn't tell us how close in time these things are to the end. He simply warns us so we won't be led astray by false teachers. Because false teachers are... They're just always ready to pluck Christians. I remember back in the 
the 90s, somebody's sharing with me, you know, the, I don't know if it's true today or not, but uh, the Mormon faith was the fastest growing faith in this country back in the 90s. And you know who their number one converts were? Southern Baptists. Not atheists. Not agnostics. Southern Baptists. Just plucking them. False teachers just plucking them. Because false teachers always have an appeal. Why? Because they always have an answer. Whatever is occurring, they have an answer. And people want an answer, especially in times of trial and tribulation. People are looking for answers. So Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They want what sounds good to them. And destruction and trial and persecution and disease and wars and death, that doesn't sound good. I have an answer for you. Let me go traipsing after the answer. So Jesus is... He's warning us. He's saying, don't be shocked by these things that are coming. Keep holding on to the truth. Don't allow these false prophets and teachers and preachers to grab you because of things going on in the world. Keep holding on to truth. Keep at it. Second, Jesus tells us of persecutions to come, so we won't fall away. He tells us in verse 9 that they will deliver you up to tribulation. He says you will be put to death. You will be hated by all nations for my sake. The trials will be severe. They will even, the, they will even cost some of you your lives, and you will be hated, he says, by the ethnons, the nations. On account of my name. Being a Christian in the world is not easy. And we haven't even faced hard times in our context yet. But you'll notice that the people that we are to share the truth with, the people that we are to go to, the ethnons, the ethne, the nations, are those who will persecute us as we go to them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Well, it sure doesn't look like it, Jesus. And trials come and persecutions descend and death becomes a common experience. It's easy to think, Two things. One, these nations are our enemies and they are not worth going to. And two, Jesus has forsaken us. He's left us. We're on our own. He's saying, no. Let me tell you what is coming. So that when it comes, when the persecution comes, when you 
are assailed for standing up for my name, you know that you got to keep preaching that truth. you got to keep telling the truth. you got to keep going to those that will persecute you. And you got to keep loving them. And you need to know, I'm with you. Just because you're getting persecuted and belittled and even put to death doesn't mean that I've left you. I'm with you. I've told you this is coming. Someone brought to my attention this week, uh, Hebrews 10. I don't know I'd ever thought about this text. The writer of Hebrews, he's talking to Christians and he says to them, quote, you have endured a struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And then he says this, you've joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Who does that? Who joyfully accepts the plundering of their property? These Christians. How do they do that? He says, because they, quote, had a better possession and an abiding possession. Keep on. You keep the faith. You keep being bold. You keep loving. You keep being patient in the midst of suffering. Don't turn away. Be faithful. Be faith filled, Jesus is saying. It leads to the third reason. He tells us about these events so we won't be surprised by those who do fall away. Verse 10, many will fall away. This isn't what they signed up for. When they joined the church, when they came into the church, when they professed Christ, it was safe, it was even comfortable, and now this is too much. This is too hard. Faith is far less appealing now. He says, not only will people fall away, some will, quote, betray one another and hate one another, he tells us in verse 10. That strikes at the very core of what it means to be Christian, as we've seen these last two weeks. What marks a Christian is love, and now what marks them is what marks Satan. It is hatred, and hatred in its absolute worst form, betrayal. Those that you called brothers and sisters in Christ that you walked with, that you knew, that you fellowship with, now are hating you and betraying you. There's, I don't think there's anything more painful I've experienced as a pastor than ministering to people, investing my life in them, sitting with them, counseling them, encouraging them, and then to see them walk away from the faith completely. Some of you have experienced that with friends or family members. It just, it just grips. And it just will undo you. It's just painful. That's what Jesus tells us in advance. Expect it. It's coming. D don't let it take away your faith. Be faith-filled and be faithful. 
you know this, but when the church experiences persecution, there is a, there's a winnowing effect. There's a purifying effect. And you begin to see that some of those that were of us are not truly, were not ever truly of us. To leave. And those that are of us will remain of us. It's a purifying effect. So he's saying, don't be surprised that some fall away. Finally, Jesus tells us so we might rest upon his promises. And he gives those in verse 14. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The one who endures will be saved. Promise. He says that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. It's not that everybody will receive the gospel, but there will not be left a dark place in all the world. Light will shine everywhere in the world, and then he will come. It's a promise. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus says, then you must endure. You must endure. Every generation of Christians is called to be faithful and is called to be faith-filled in the midst of whatever challenges God has ordained by His providence for our generation. And it just may be that this generation has a greater call of suffering than the generation that preceded us. It just may be. And he's saying, be faith-filled and be faithful. Keep going. Keep holding fast. Keep on. Will you endure is the question he's asking us. But it's not as if he's just asking. He's he's trying to prepare you and I so that we will. Endurance doesn't just happen. It's not as if when, when things get ratcheted up and there becomes more persecution and there becomes more animosity and there becomes more hatred that you and I will just rise to the challenge. It doesn't just happen. Now, you and I are to be faithfully pursuing Christ now, are to be faith-filled now, are to be growing in grace and love for Christ now, are to be storing our treasures in heaven now, are to be seeking to love our enemies now, are seeking to encourage our fellowship and our love among one another now, so that when the things get ratcheted up, we're ready. We're to cling to him. We're to grab a hold of him with all that we are. And just hold fast. No matter what comes. Be faith-filled and faithful now. 
Christ is returning, and then the end will come. The gospel will be proclaimed through the whole world. That's a promise. But here's another promise. It tells us in John 10, it gives this wonderful illustration that he is the good shepherd and that he cares for his own, that he knows his own, and his own know him. And he says, no one is able to pluck them out of my hands, meaning his sheep. Because he says, no one is greater than the Father, and no one can pluck them out of the hands of the Father. So you have this great promise underlying all of this, that even as you and I are admonished to cling to him, to hold fast to him, to keep in him, that there's this undergirding of, if we are truly in him, he is holding fast to us. And we can't be plucked from his hand keeps you as you keep him. He says, be faith-filled and be faithful. This age will come to a close and the new age will be consummated. It's promised. Even now, Jesus says, we're, we're just experiencing the birth pains of it. All the trials, all the tribulations, all the sufferings, they are but just birth pains. When you and I see wars, when we hear rumors of wars, when we see a Christian martyred or a Christian maligned, when we see disease, Jesus is saying those are just birth pains. They're birth pains. The other end of that is birth. When a mother is in birth pains, it's not just anguish that has her. There's also hope. There's not just pain she's experiencing. There's joy. And so Jesus is saying, as you see these things in your world, as you hear rumors of wars, and you see wars, and you see disease, and you see persecution, and you suffer for the sake of the gospel, it shouldn't just be anguish. Because you know that on the other side of that, there's life. There's hope. There's joy because he's promised. He's promised that he will return and he will take us home with him for everlasting life. He tells all of this to us so that we know. Jerusalem, as we'll see next week, will be destroyed. We'll see the following week the return of Christ. And he's trying to prepare that generation and he's trying to prepare every generation after it. Expect these things to come and keep being faith-filled and keep being faithful. Will you be? Pray so. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the words of our Savior, that they are the words of a good shepherd to his sheep. We pray that you would help us to be a people that are faith-filled and faithful in all of our life. That though the world may swirl around us, that we are continuing to grip a hold of our Savior, even as he grips a hold of us. We might finish that race 
May we might walk into that everlasting life with him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.